Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome, everyone, into a Friday chat between uh, Chen Zhao, the macro maven of Montreal. Look at that. Unanticipated alliteration. I hope you're ready for a lot of those. Uh, so macro, macro maven of Montreal, that's what I'm going to call you, Chen. Uh, and I'm Marco Popic. I'm chief strategist at Clark Tower Group. Also, uh, if Chen had a coaching tree, I would be on it because I work for Chen and with Chen at BCA Research. Chen is the founder uh, and chief global strategist at Alpine Macro. And Chen, I want to start off right away. Uh, you and I had a conversation about a year ago. Everybody was basically batting down the hatches, bearish uh, as can be. And, you know, a lot of people are bearish a lot of the time. But uh, you basically called the soft landing or the no landing. Um, you got that right uh, 12 months ago. Uh, bullish in equities as well, I believe, somewhere around there, uh, around the... Uh, summer of 2022 um and uh you know that's a great great call definitely showed the value of independent research like alpine macro a lot of investment banks got that wrong where do we go from here you made a great call 12 months ago where do we go next 12 months well thank you marco for your uh, kind words i mean uh <laughs> i I don't know whether I'm a macro maven, but hey, uh, you know, we, you and I will work together. We always had a lot of fun, so we'll continue to have fun. But you know, with regard to that question, uh, I think the the important thing here is there's a lot of confusing signals because uh, if you think about the economy, think about business cycle, you know, the the, uh, the performance, the behavior of the U.S. economy was completely, absolutely. Unusual. Uh, what do I mean by that? Usually, one says uh, high interest rates, tighten monetary policy very aggressively. You wouldn't expect that economy is going to slow. You would ex expect that economy is going to probably get getting into a recession, especially judging by the magnitude of uh, yield curve conversion. You know, we talked about that before, but nonetheless, you know, none of the the, uh, the slump actually has taken place. Instead, I mean, the economy looks like it's set. Uh, beginning to uh, strengthen. Now, we have heard a lot of explanations, um, you know, but I, I don't see I don't see any convincing explanation why the U.S. economy all of a sudden has regained strength. I think uh, my interpretation, my explanation of this uh, unusual strength of the U.S. economy, which is completely, uh, completely unprecedented in the U.S. history, I analyze it with the fact that actually a fiscal policy is extraordinarily pro-cyclical this time around. This is the first time ever in the U.S. history, uh, meaning when the Fed was tightening monetary policy, uh, the administration, the Biden administration, actually is pumping a lot of fiscal stimulus into the system. So how big? It's a massive. Uh, we're talking about 5 to 6% of GDP in terms of fiscal thrust. That has been applied to the U.S. economy from pretty much third quarter last year all the way till now. 
I think this basically explains why the U.S. economy has has uh, remained very resilient. That's probably explains why the the U.S. economy has actually begin has already begun to uh, accelerate. And that has also explained why the bond market has done poorly. But I think that is all about the statistical stimulus. Now, some of our clients probably know that we we turn more cautious on stocks in recent months. The reason for that is, again, has everything to do with this fiscal stimulus. I think the physical stimulus is not going to stay here. I don't think it's a sustainable uh, story here. The very reason that we have this big pop-up in physical stimulus is really because of the Biden administration's three big spending and investment packages, the initial impact of that package that, that actually uh, gave you this uh, big uh, physical impulse. But I think as time goes by, the net impact of these packages is going to die down. That's why I think I'm still very hopeful that for the remaining of the year, for the remainder of the year, maybe first half of 2024, I think once the physical uh, stimulus to start to be withdrawn, then the U.S. economy probably be left with the interest rates that are way too high. Think about the fiscal stimulus that not only prop up growth, but also prop up rates much higher than would, than they would otherwise. That's why I don't know exactly the timing. Uh, that's why I feel that uh, this fiscal stimulus right now probably is peaking as we speak and will uh, over time die down. So that's why... I think, you know, if you want to be a controlling guy, you want to be a little bit careful on stocks because when the physical stimulus is withdrawn, then the economy probably could go into some kind of a slump. Uh, but that is going to be good for bonds because everybody, nobody wants bonds. Everybody wants to sell bonds. So I think I want bonds at this point. I want to be a little bit overweight duration. That's, you know, that really sum up the, uh, the macro story for the moment. Marco, back to you. No, it's interesting, you know, because if you look at um, Google Trends, if you look at uh, on Bloomberg sort of news trends, uh, soft landing has exploded as a term, as a narrative, recession has collapsed. And what you're saying is like, yeah, that's exactly the moments that I want to be cautious. Uh, last 12 months ago, that was completely opposite. Uh, your colleague, Aravinder Kalirite at Alpine Macro just published a really interesting piece, Higher R Star or Longer Lag. And so it's pretty definitive here that you guys are sitting on the longer lags side of the equation. I think I'm a little bit more open to there being a higher R star, uh, just because the U.S. consumer is pretty healthy. So uh, you make the argument that savings, uh, the excess savings has been whittled down. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. consumer spent 12 years deleveraging. So their balance sheets were really healthy when we dumped that three to five trillion on, on their checking deposits. Um, so I'm not sure if they're going to necessarily panic right as the savings expires, but you make the point. It doesn't really matter. It's logged into tooth either way. Fiscal is being withdrawn. Maybe it's not three months, but six or eight months, but we're at the end of the cycle. You were saying there's, there's going to be an impact from higher yields. No. Yeah, I think Marco, you raised a very interesting question. To be honest, um, this R star issue. Um, I mean, this is not sort of observ observable. Is is nor is it uh, uh, directly measurable? But we can only infer that through 
so-called revealed preference, meaning the economic performance of the market. So far, the revealed preference seems to suggest that our star will probably be higher, even though we don't know whether the uh, the rates, the economic performance or stock market performance was, was caused because was caused by short-term factors such as fiscal stimulus or because uh, caused by a longer-term issue such as a higher uh, mutual rate. My thought here is this. Um, the mutual rate uh, probably, you're right, probably slightly higher than before, but how much higher, I don't know. I think, I don't see, usually when you talk about RSR, you talk about demographic issues, you're talking about productivity, you're talking about all this uh, long-term uh, forces. I don't think that thing have, have changed much since the pandemic. If there's any change, I think you, you put your finger on something that is really important. If there's anything changed and observable, is a savings rate. You can go U.S. household state sector savings rate just moved down from pre-pandemic of nine percent to today four percent. I don't think it's going to go back to nine. If it doesn't go back to nine, then uh, you removed one uh, key lag on this uh, sort of a low, uh, low R star, low neutral rate argument. So. Precisely because of the U.S. household balance sheets are getting better. That's why they probably are not going to be squeezed to save a lot, lot more. So that's probably a reason. But how much, you know, pre-pandemic, the average real rate is about 0.5%. We're talking about long-term, like 10-year tips yield, about 0.5. So I say I'll double that. I say equilibrium um, real rate is about a 1%. And then inflation expectation right now is a steady 2.2%. So you add them up, you've got about, you know, 3.2. So now you have to deal with the so-called term premium. What is the term premium? I mean, term premium, uh, the Fed estimate, there's all over the place. This is some, some estimates say still negative, others say maybe positive. So I, I want to be aggressive. I want to be cautious. So let's take a point in term premium. So you're already talking about 3.7, 3.8. But anyway, that obviously still tells you that the fair value is is, is somewhere uh, 3.7, 3.8, way lower than today's bond yield. That's why, you know, I, I that's why I feel like I'm still inclined to be a, uh, a more positive side on bonds. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. No, that's a that's a really important point. I mean, uh, the savings rate is very difficult to forecast, obviously, and I would argue that uh, the number one factor when people try to forecast how quickly this savings will happen is the savings rate. 
And I think that consistently over the last 12 months, economists have gotten this wrong because they're not adjusting for psychology. I mean, think about what just happened in 2020. We were told the Great Depression was upon us. We were told the Spanish flu was upon us. And the household net worth in the United States of America went up as percent of GDP for the first time in human history. You as a human being became wealthier during a recession. Why would you increase your savings rate? What lesson did you learn as a consumer, as a household over the past four years? And I think the lesson you learned is to YOLO. Um, so that's, that's where I stand with that question. But of course, as you said, the neutral rate is an unobservable factor, which is great for you and me. We're professional BSers, of course. We don't have to do the math. So that's a beautiful, beautiful picture <laughs> of the face. I don't guess it. I mean, everybody. We have a PhD. Yes, exactly. Okay, so let me ask you something though. This is this is something that we're uh, what I always love when you and I work together. I always like how you would break down complex uh, economic complex uh, concepts to you know the rest of the world the, to the plebs, and I consider myself one of them. Of course, my background in is political science, not economics. So I was very fortunate to work with uh, folks like you. And one of the things that I think a lot of people confuse is the yield curve. Yield curve has been negative. Now, I, I talk about the yield curve. There's two theories about it. It's either a harbinger or a hammer, or maybe a little bit of both. What I mean by that is that from what I understand or what I learned uh, working with you is that it's either a harbinger of something bad happening because basically central bank has low end high and then as the collective wisdom of the market starts to get worried about the long term about the 12 and beyond it moves from risk assets to the bond market the law again comes down and therefore the yield curve inverting is a harbinger of something bad the other theory of course is that it's actually a hammer that it's going to hammer that it's actually going to have an impact on the economy because banks struggle to lend when the yield curve is negative. Uh, they borrow short-term, lend long-term, and of course, you know, when the yield curve is inverted, they don't make money. So um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I don't know, you know better than me, but in this situation, shouldn't we be worried? Because let's say, let's say I'm right. Let's say that my bullish view that American households are gonna YOLO is correct. Okay, cool. You're still right that their savings that they've accumulated, the access savings is gonna whittle down. I would argue, I don't care. Shin, that is irrelevant. They learned the wrong lesson from COVID. They're going to borrow. They're going to go out. They're going to put those vacations on credit cards. Don't tell me about their excess savings. American household psychology has shifted. Now, the problem with my view, of course, is that if the yield curve continues to be inverted, banks may not be willing to lend in that environment, and not just for households, but also corporate. Where do you sit on this? How should we interpret what's happening to the yield curve? And well, is it going to be right yet again? So in the recorded history, the yield curve inverted about 39 times. I'm talking about um, two to 10, but 39 times. This is a, you know, there was over predict about a uh, one and a half recession. So, you know, that's why a lot of people use that as a signal. But of course, when you have inverted curve, well, you inflict damage for sure. The banking system is the the top one, that, you know, because the banks are all borrowing short, lending long. So if you invert a curve, your toes, especially your margin, get screwed. So that's no question. That's why you had this uh, regional banking crisis. Uh, 
cleared up. And that, of course, the Fed has came in and clamped it down. But here, um, how do I see that? Right now, you can see the curve is um, it's just steepening. We have a bare uh, steep, steepener that is working now. It's not really uh, the short end of the curve is projecting ever higher short rates. That's not the case. If you look at the curve, it is just projecting that the holding period be longer. It's about it's the same is the same rates but longer. That's why the, the mathematics is that if you if you hold it forever, let's say at this level, then your your long end of the curve is going to converge eventually to the short end of the curve. So that's why I think right now this is a a very critical call still on the inflation. If inflation uh, turned out to be way uh, softer than than market was uh, afraid of, then I think the bulls along the short and the curve is going to drift downwards. I think that's why we still have to make a call on inflation. Inflation, if inflation turned out to be right, then you're probably going to be okay, even though you have a curving version. Now, again, Marco. Don't forget, there was a 6% fiscal expansion on the background that is working against the inverted curve. Even though you, you type, you, you, you know, the degree of the inversion, in my view, really reflects the short-term impact, stimulating impact of fiscal expansion. If you inject 6% of the stimulus in the system, we know that it's a short-term stimulus, we know that it's going to stoke up growth, and we know that it's going to create upward pressure on interest rates. But long and the curve understand that is, hey, this thing is not going to be sustainable. That's why I think there is uh, a element of physical uh, expansion that is also embedded in this yield curve. That's that's my interpretation. That's why you can have a scenario where you have inversion, but without recession because of the propping up effect by the physical uh, by the fiscal policy. Yeah, and I think one of the things that many economists have underestimated is that the fiscal policy, uh, not just 21, but even 2020, lived on. Man, that's massive. It's a massive. Even today, it's a massive. 6% of a GDP. Man, oh man. But that's right, and it, it actually lives on um, yeah. the checking account of consumers longer than people expect. For example, Korea War, after Korean War, we had a very vicious fiscal cliff recession, but that that's because the fiscal stimulus stayed on the Korean Peninsula as tanks and airplanes that were destroyed. The fiscal stimulus of 2020 and 21 lived on on the consumer balance sheet, and I think that's your, what you're describing as your, these latent effects of what we've done. Last question for you on the macro front, and then we're going to open up to the audience, and also you can ask me whatever's on your mind. Yeah, uh, a lot of questions for you, Marco. Cool. Okay, good. So then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a last one for you. Uh, China, that was another thing you got right 12 months ago. Um, you know, basically, I think the collective wisdom of the uh, investment community was that zero COVID was super bad, and then by the extension of that logic, removing zero COVID is super good. I mean, some of the investment banks out there in Q1 of this year were calling for a new leveraging cycle. Like consumers were going to re-leverage in China and bring us more growth. That hasn't happened. Uh, you were super bearish 12 months ago. To me, it looks like uh, China's undergoing 
this is something that we've been talking about for five years at Clock Tower. China is undergoing secularization, very similar to the American experience. My question is this. Right now, everyone's kind of bearish in China for a good reason. Uh, isn't there risk here to the upside? Because if we learned anything from 2022, it's that policymakers in China, once they decide to do a 180-degree false shift, they do it. They all mess around. So if somebody explains balance sheet recession, if like they fly Richard Koo to Beijing, and he explains the denominator effect yeah. to Xi Jinping and convinces him, isn't the risk here like, boom, false to ship? Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair question, uh, Marco. Um, yeah, if I look at the Chinese shares, they're trading in a single digit. It's already become a call option. It's not really stock market anymore. Everybody's fleeing uh, uh, China. Now, here there are two things uh, I want to uh, uh, keep uh, reminding people. Um, you know, what, what are the Chinese economic problems? Basically, I, I keep thinking about that. But basically, the problem can be summed up in two points, both at a macro level and at a micro level. At the macro level, uh, the issue is very clear. Uh, they got a very serious oversaving problem. If you look at the household savings rate right now, it's skyrocketed to about 40, 45%, whereas the investment, we're talking about the desired investment private sector, basically it's, it's non-existent. You know, it just came down. That is basically a massive issue. Uh, that is a very serious issue that actually brought down Japan uh, in terms of nominal GDP growth. You can see Chinese nominal GDP growth is grinding towards 4%, which is the lowest level ever in that country's history. So we know that if you have the oversaving problem, you have to either uh, see output contract or price decline or some combination of both, unless, unless the government sector comes in and spell the, spend a heck of a lot more money for the private sector to keep the economy more or less in balance. So that's the macro issue. A huge imbalance between savings and uh, investment. Of course, I don't want to go through why the investment has been so Leak, you know, of course, the private sector having a problem, but most importantly, uh, the Chinese urbanization process is more or less mature. So, you build all these highways, you build all this uh, fully trend system, you know, what else it got, right? You basically build them all. So, that's why the, the desired investment is not there anymore. That's macro, micro problem. You know, Xi Jinping's policy is all on the map over the last 10 years. I mean, he's not really uh, pro-business. He's not really pro-private ownership. He's not really into reform. Instead, he's into political control, communist ideology, centered uh, uh, policy. So that basically really undermined uh, private business confidence. You know, the private business is on the run. They are steered. You know, if they're not sure what the future holds for them, why the hell they want to invest, right? That's also uh, factoring into the growth, weak growth, weak investment, weak confidence, and things like that. So these are two big issues. In my view, the first issue is reasonably easier to deal with. You just go in and spend a heck of a lot more money and borrow from the private sector and spend it. The Chinese public sectors. Uh, Debt is better low still. They can do that. But the problem here is Xi Jinping is very reluctant to do it. 
Why? Because we have, we means the foreign experts just kept telling the Chinese government, don't do it. If, if, if you're fighting out your public sector debt, you're going to have trouble down the road. But he's very reluctant. He's very into deleveraging. That's where the problem is. You deleverage the economy into a deflation. So my bet is this. Uh, the situation right now is not terribly enough so that they are forced into a major action yet. So that's why he's going to do piecemeal reflation here and there. Uh, at the same time, the growth is going to run lower and lower until something that really uh, bad happens. I don't know what it is. I mean, think about the zero COVID policy. That's a Xi Jinping. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, all marked uh, in his policies that, hey, don't be bothered by all this Western press. Stay steadfast. So we have to stick to the plan until, until what? Well, the COVID policy until the goddamn economy broke down. So that's why he, he just buggered off. You know, everything break loose. So I, I'm concerned that he's going to make the same mistake. Hey, stand fast. Don't let me know. Well, I'm going to flood the system with stimulus. Right now, this is the time you want to flood the system with the stimulus. But he's not going to do it. So I think the economy is going to grind lower and lower. Until something bad happens, I don't know what that is. But hey, uh, I don't think this downside is completely uh, uh, exhausted yet. But but uh, we're we're getting there pretty quickly. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Well, you know, uh, there was a question from the audience. Actually, has Xi Jinping stimulated the Chinese economy before? And the answer is a uh, definitive. Absolute yes. So this, uh, you know, there is a perception out there that he's an Austrian economist or that he is a card-carrying member of the Tea Party, as I joke often about <laughs> Xi Jinping. Um, but in 2015-16, they did use the PBOC balance sheet. They used the PSL facility to basically do shantytown redevelopment. 2012-13, um, uh, basically, they did the anti-corruption campaign, which caught them by surprise about how much it slowed down the economy 2014 they did offset that so uh he has been a pragmatist slash populist before and i think you're right uh i'll they've learned the wrong lesson from the west i mean they basically yeah totally remarkable right so basically if you look at the pattern of their policies it's a stop and go whenever they stimulate he steps in the economy start to grow every time you try to deliberate the economy tank you know, basically, you can see the 10 year and there are three or four cycles basically following that pattern. This is what, you know, what I would say is uh, this is kind of political. And in the West, in the yeah. West, we took too long to realize that a absolute Marxist communist like Yanis Varoufakis was right mm -hmm. and that you have to stimulate right. through the public. I mean, unfortunately, this is when Keynesians are right, there is no other way. Unless you want to have the Great Depression, the public sector cannot, a private sector cannot organically reduce their debt. You know, that, that, that does not happen. Because if the growth slows down, their debt relative to growth is going to go yeah. up. Duh. Math. Yeah. 101. Now, in the West, we were dumb. We believed in the Tea Party and the Angela Merkels of the world that somehow austerity will magically help us. And uh, as a consequence, the political outcomes were, of course, rise of anti-establishment parties, um, 
and rise of populism across the Western world. You know, things like Brexit, Donald Trump's election, rise of Podemos in Spain, rise of, um, you know, Syriza in Greece, AFD in Germany, uh, Fratelli d'Italia in Italy, Five Star Movement, so on and so on and so on. Uh, and in seven years, we went from interest rates to QE, and then pause, and then fiscal after 2016-17. I don't think China has seven years to dabble with anti-establishment. I don't think China has seven years to dabble with these kind of, uh, these, in a way, release valves. Democracies have a release valve. We can get angry. We can give the elites a collective middle finger right. by voting for somebody who is anti-establishment. In China, you don't have that. Really. Uh, you know, there's no such mechanism. That's right. And so uh, people are pissed off, you know, become social unrest and some, some stuff like that, or, or do bad. You just, you know, suffocate the thing all the way to, uh, to some very bad end. So that's, that's, that's a sad part. Yeah. He, he broke the rule. So, you know, what, what, what else you want me to say? Because in the past, if you made a mistake, you got a 10-year term, then, then the next one. Is always the next team is always hopeful, right? Now I don't know when. Yeah, when is the end? Well, and, you know, and, and this time there is no Prime Minister Li Keqiang oh. to blame yeah. for your mistakes. And I think this so this is where I'm a little bit more on the side that he will do what he's done in the past. Okay. I think you I agree with you, it's gonna get a lot worse. Yeah. But I think that when they turn They'll turn faster than we did in the West. It's not going to take them seven years. It's going to take them three to seven months. Yeah. And when they turn, they're going to have to turn big. And you will just suddenly wake up. You'll wake up one day, and all the housing is for living, not for speculation, will yeah. be erased. I he said he's. I think you are absolutely right, Mari. Um, he's already under huge stress because uh, the people I spoke to. In, inside China, everybody's pissed off. I mean, I, I, as a leader, it's not it's not a sort of a new thing that you piss off some people. But man, it's not very easy to piss off everybody. And he, he, he is pissing off everybody. That is basically telling you how much stress he's under. And everyone's bearish, uh, by the way. I mean, like... Everybody is bearish. Everybody's a pessimist. Onshore consensus is deeply, deeply bearish. I agree. There's a there's another question, just really quickly. Why are Chinese crude purchases so high with a weak economy? Are they stockpiling for war? Uh, I would say no. Oil prices were relatively weak for the last 12 months, uh, and Chinese simply based their purchases on the price of oil. So, yes, oil prices. So also, 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 Russia has actually uh, offered very, very good prices to Chinese, so that, that's that's additional incentive for them to stockpile some cheap Russian oil, for, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so I'm now open for your questions. I got about I got about a bunch of questions. The first thing, of course, is this intriguing uh, 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 this intriguing story out of Russia. I mean, Progushin. Now, what the hell is going on? You must have some uh, this yeah. is the uh, story. I know that uh, everybody has their own take. You must you you always have a very interesting uh, take on this this kind of stuff. Let me you know, take it away, man. I mean, first of all, I'm very surprised that uh, Prigozhin has managed to survive for as long as he has. Um, look, the entire story of Wagner is a is a very weird one. If you follow geopolitics, wars, civil wars, international wars, it just doesn't happen often that a country of the kind of stature and power that Russia has outsources its national security to a private group. 
This does not happen. And no, the United States did not do the same in Iraq. Uh, you know, private security and military contractors that the United States has used were used for diplomatic security, for, you know, base perimeter security. They were not used to assault entire cities um, in a significant way. So uh, the rise of Wagner is a sign of destabilization of Russia. This, I mean, you know, you can go back and read Machiavelli's The Prince to understand why relying on mercenaries is, is a is a clear sign of weakness. Um, so then, when the when the mutiny happens, um, and the fact that they're not blown out of the sky, or that you, Russia doesn't use its air force to attack the column of about five six thousand mercenaries, I mean, that was also a weird situation. The way that that whole situation was resolved was basically for those in being given asylum. Um, in Belarus, and then popping up in Africa, you know, continuing to do business deals. The entire episode is, is I think, uh, a sign of, of real political destabilization. Now, people can stay in power as the power shrinks. And this is a, an important point. President Assad remains the president of Syria. Like, he is president of 67% of Syria. As opposed to before the civil war, that started in 2012, he was president of 100% of Syria. So you can lose power as you stay in power. And that's something that's very important. I think that too many people are indexing on whether or not President Putin is still in the Kremlin. He is, but he's clearly losing control, direct control over certain segments of the country, of institutions, and of power projection. And the fact that he shot out a private jet out of the sky, to me, means absolutely nothing. I mean, great. You know, slow clap. Wow. Well done. Uh, it, so that's, that's the first thing. And, and this, this reinforces his power base, I guess, right? That's your key point. It's basically, you just try to knock down one potential opponent. Uh, does that mean that the... Uh, Wagner is completely dismembered right now? Yes, I think so. I think Wagner is completely dismembered. Uh, from what we understand, they're being integrated into command and control of the Russian military. Um, but mutinies happen when things are going bad. Mutinies don't happen when things are going well, right? Right. And, and so the fact that Wagner mutinied uh, also tells us that the perception in elite circles in Russia is that things are going bad. And, you know, it's Prigozhin today, it's some kernel tomorrow. That's right. So that erosion. Now, why does this matter for investors? You know, what does this mean? I will just say this. I used Assad as an example of someone who is in power, but his power is weaker. Another person I can use is Yeltsin. Yeltsin was in charge of Russia throughout the 90s. Russia was politically destabilized during that period. Now, why did this matter for global macro investors? Well, it didn't because we didn't care about export of commodities. Hmm. Commodities were in a bear market in the 1990s. Russian oil exports have, have during this period of political destabilization uh, in the Yeltsin regime, they have, didn't really impact oil prices at all. What will happen if Russian oil exports have over the next five years because of political destabilization? And by the way, political destabilization does not mean civil war, does not mean roving bands of warlords. It just means that the macro context in Russia becomes less conducive for investment. Right. You know, 
in that scenario, I think you can have a world where Russia fails to meet the expectations of commodity supply, whether it's metals or whether it's oil. And I think that's the long-term implications of Russia for the next five to 10 years. Well, you talk about this commodity stuff. Uh, I have a, uh, I heard a theory I thought it was interesting because uh, you, you, for sure, you know that actually the uh, the Ukrainian offensive is not going well. Yeah. Uh, the uh, which is actually from a control because most of people in the West just want Russia to be defeated. Uh, you know what's going on on the ground is not really uh, to the pleasure of the Western politicians and, and population are large. But there is a theory that you know. I'd like to hear your opinion, um, which is always different. So the the the, the store theory is this: if Russia were um, quote unquote defeated, how do, how do I I mean what is Russian? Well, what, how to define Russia being defeated? I don't know. Maybe you know the, uh, the Crimea was recaptured by by Ukraine, but but anyway, if Russia is really on the defensive side and, and things really gone wrong, actually it could be, it turned out to be really bad for for the markets because, of, you know, the, the theory goes that Putin can go some uh, very radical uh, reaction ranging from, uh, you know, cut off completely the energy supply to, uh, you know, food supply, and even, even, um, Shape rounding with the with the nuclear uh, weapons. So, you know where I'm getting. But anyway, what is your what is your take on that? Yeah, I, I definitely think that the worst case scenario for the market is, ironically, success of the Ukrainian offensive. Absolutely. Uh, now, not all territory is equal and the same. So, you know, Kherson and Zaporizhia are merely uh, tools for Russian control of Crimea. In other words, they have no real emotional attachment to those two oblasts. Zaporizhia is a land bridge. Kherson is supply of water and a buffer to Crimea. That's it. That's it. So Ukrainian territorial gains in those two, insofar as they're significant, but don't interrupt flow of water and a land bridge, Russians couldn't care less. Donbass a little bit different. There is an emotional attachment to Donbass. They've kind of sold it to their people as uh, Novoya uh, Russia, which is like New Russia, which is, you know, but again, I can see them having some territorial losses there perhaps and, and being okay with it. Crimea, I think for the most part, Russians are just like, this is Russia. You know, this is, this. there's no, there's no room for losses, territorial losses. And so I would argue you're absolutely right. The better the Ukrainian offensive does, the worse the market's going to react. But not all territory that re Ukrainians reconquer is made the same. And the market will ignore territorial gains in Zaporizhia and Kherson. But the closer they get to Crimea, I do think the market would appropriately imbue some of that real risk premium back into uh, you know, assets that tend to react. So equity markets proximate to Ukraine, commodities that Russia has a handle on, uh, gold, treasuries, those could start reacting the closer you get to Crimea. Now, my high conviction view has been uh, that Ukrainian offensive stands no chance of success. I stand by that. Giving Ukrainians F-16 fighter jets is like giving my son a Bloomberg terminal. 
I'm sorry. You have me wrong, man. I, I, I saw you uh, made that uh, uh, prediction uh, a while ago. I mean, it turned out to be exactly as you projected. That no, is very no. difficult to play offense. Yeah. That's it. That's a turn to uh, another big issue, China-U.S. I know that you have, you've done a lot of work on China. You've become a, rapidly become a uh, uh, very, very good China expert. Um, now, um, I know a little bit of China. You know a lot. Let's say this is a geopolitical point of view. From a geopolitical point of view, um, you know, you probably agree with, with, with me that, that, that things are not going to get uh, any better probably going to try to stabilize both sides china want to stabilize the u.s doesn't want this thing going uh too bad uh what do you think that uh because lots of people are concerned our clients a lot of uh people are concerned about the uh, potential of conflict uh you know over Taiwan Strait, uh and also the recent uh um, talk between Biden and uh, and Japanese and, and South Korean head of states, um, you know, seem to be like a, a quasi alliance being formed, um, especially in the in the week that, especially especially when you think about Koreans and the Japanese and the Koreans hate the Japanese for a long time, but hey, now they are sort of all sort of got together. That's obviously again China very nervous. So in, in that part of the in that part of the world, I mean, this is like big topic. But anyway, if you you always have some uh, interesting to say about uh, China, U.S. and geopolitical landscape in that part of the world, any comments on, on any of those issues? That'd be really interesting. So what I'm going to say is not going to be welcomed by 99% of the viewers. You know, I uh, I I have a very high conviction view that the U.S. is the factor of instability, not not China. So China's vulnerable. China's uh, been humbled. Uh, China's arrogance after GFC has proven to be, uh, look, a tragic mistake, a strategic mistake for Beijing. They tried to bite off more than they could chew. And they know that. You know, they understand that, especially after the disastrous failure of Russia in Ukraine. And so they've launched a charm offensive against, uh, well, not against, but towards Europe. They're trying to illustrate to the rest of the world that they're not a factor of instability. Uh, the U.S., however, no longer wants to play that game. What the U.S. has learned is that the world is multipolar. As much as the Americans don't like it, it is. Why? Because when Americans say jump, nobody jumps. You know, the Saudis just basically got themselves a nuclear a civilian nuclear program and F-35 fighter jets for nothing by by merely suggesting they were drifting to China. In a truly bipolar world, Americans would have cracked down on an ally like Saudi Arabia with sticks. In a multipolar world, they showered them with uh, carrots. So in a multipolar world, America has a problem, which is that nobody really cares what America says. So a lot of countries have been unwilling to create the coalition of the willing against China. You know, Australia, South Korea, Japan, notwithstanding, the Europeans don't care. Macron went to China with 40 CEOs. He's going to sell as many Airbuses as he can. So America has switched from a magnanimous America to a Machiavellian America. And so it is in the business of trying to provoke China into some sort of a conflict. Absolutely. And from a real politic perspective, this is the correct move. 
because if China shows anger, if it bears its teeth in anger, then obviously it becomes much more easy to build that coalition. So that's the first issue. The second issue that is also a factor of instability is domestic politics in America. Uh, I encourage everyone to read Jake Sullivan, uh, the National Security Advisor, his speech in the Brookings Institute, where he basically adopts, this is the National Security Advisor to the Democratic Party president, adopts a lot of the narratives of the Trump administration, which is basically America has a lot of ills, a lot of problems. They're all China's fault. I'm summarizing. Now, why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem, Chen, because then being tough in China is not a tool towards some sort of an outcome, towards a better deal, towards Chinese doing A, B, C, D. No, no, no. It becomes their purpose of every administration, particularly Democratic Party one, because by being tough on China, you're proving to the American voter that you're trying to improve middle class life in America. It becomes a domestic political issue. The narrative is now that geopolitics is a domestic issue in the U.S. That's a really big problem for a number of reasons. First of all, maybe China stole some American jobs, but China is not the reason the American healthcare is expensive, American universities are unaffordable, or American middle class lifestyle is unaffordable to many Americans. Like that's not actually China's fault. That's probably the fault of American policymakers, but obviously they're trying to outsource that blame to someone else. That means that there's almost nothing Beijing can do to satisfy American demand, right? Because if it's if the source of tension is in domestic policy issues, it's not going to get resolved. Especially if you are right that there's even a mild recession on the horizon. Things are just going to get worse. Um, and I would argue that they're going to get even worse if the Democrats continue to do well. So um, my thesis is the best thing for China U.S. relations is probably a Republican president. This is because Republicans have the domestic maneuvering room to negotiate with an enemy. This is where the saying only Nixon could go to China comes from. And so if the Democrats continue to be in charge of foreign policy, what that means is that they're not going to have that domestic maneuvering room to make deals with rivals and enemies. They're going to be accused of being weak, uh, accused of being, you know, dubs and so some sort of a, uh, you know, detente is unlikely. Where does this all go? In the near term, in the near term, I have a fairly good conviction level that China's not going to lose its cool in the near term. So in the near term, I don't think that, I think Chinese know exactly what I'm talking about. I think if you are Chinese or if you're watching this from China, you're violently nodding. Americans probably think this is CCP propaganda. I don't really care. Cool. Think whatever you want. I would and also what you said, Marco. No, I know you can't because you know you're Chinese. CP member. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here's what I would say. But here's what I would say. I mean, I don't care. I'm a nihilist, so you know, I, I watch the world burn and make money off of it. So like that's I'm here to do objective analysis. But here's what I would say. What I would say about this is that the Chinese understand this and, and I and I would argue with a fairly high level of conviction that they're not gonna lose their pool in the near term. But you cannot make that call over the long term. Over the long term, there has to be a risk premium. So if you're holding long-term investments in China that are illiquid, that are private, that really doesn't make sense. And a lot of institutional investors that I speak to who manage large pools of capital are starting to realize that anything that's fixed in China, that's nailed to the ground, that's illiquid, is basically a bad investment. Because... 
maybe Mark was right over the next two years and China doesn't lose its cool. But three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the probability becomes much more difficult to ascertain. And that's why we've seen such a huge flood, uh, like a deluge of investment coming out of China that's in the private space, that's illiquid. It's just very difficult to invest in that. Public markets, I understand you can go in and out. Your point, Chinese equities are weak. I mean, sorry, cheap. If Xi Jinping wakes up one day, decides Richard Ku is right, he stimulates, boom, you're going to make a lot of money. But that's different. And that's short term. That's portfolio flow. That's very nice. It's a very profound analysis, man. Um, I, I, I've never heard anybody who uh, spoke in that terms, even though uh, I, I hear some buddies taking the same view inside China. But hey, you're independent. You're, you know, you're not a CCP member, obviously. You're not. <laughs> you're just... But I will also not be invited to pen this for foreign affairs. I know. That's that. Really? That's in the flag. Really? And I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's very educational too. It's insightful. It's a great comment. Um, so now, uh, how, how much time we have? We have 10 minutes. You have so 10 minutes left? Okay. I have some more yeah. questions from the audience, or if you have more questions for me. I have sure. one more question, man. You've got oil uh, call really right. I mean, everybody was bullish, and then you came, you came out and said, well, you know, I want to be shorting it, and then you know, switch the direction at, it, at the right time. So... Energy, uh, lost some interest in it. Uh, given your track record, so what, what how do you see uh, from now on uh, going forward? So look, I mean, I, I am less concerned about the economy than you are, but I obviously wanted to de defer to you. And so my modestly bullish view on energy, I am worried about it. I don't have as high of a conviction as I did shorted last year. Well, um, I remember that. And so that, that was a high conviction view, but, and, and it was reinforced by data from China, by the fact that the Ukraine war has no, no bearing on energy prices. If, if anything, it gave us the same amount of supply at lower prices. So why are you long oil? Anyways, doesn't matter. The point is now, um, I want to be bullish oil. I think U.S. supply is not going to meet demand. You already see rig counts coming down. Uh, I think you guys published a chart on this as well. Um, but of course, if a recession is afoot, then you can't really be long oil. Um, I think that we still have maybe, maybe, I mean, like whatever Chen says a recession is I'm six months later, let's say. Yeah. I'm not sure it's going to be a recession to be honest. I think once you withdraw physical stimulus, uh, you're going to see growth coming down. Cause you know, I mean, right now, the last time I checked, uh, Atlanta Fed, yeah, uh, outcast. It's calling for a five six percent GDP growth. <laughs> no, I know, and that's why in Denver. So I have something similar to that. Uh, actually, our mutual friend Francis Scotland, I call it the the yeah. Scotland leading indicator. Yeah, uh, I recreated it on his uh, on his recommendation, and I mean it's shooting through the roof. It's suggesting ISM manufacturing PMI. It's going to bounce back, yeah. yeah. It's going to bounce back. So that's why I want to be long oil. I'm very, very respectful of your slowdown thesis, but I, I do want to be long oil uh, from these levels. Cool. Yeah, I, I, we're, we're bullish on oil still because, uh, you know, you know, just it's, this is a terminal value issue. Because every the world basically told uh, oil producer, fossil fuel industry, that hey, by 2035 uh, there'll be a, you know, I think the combustion engine is going to be banned by. 
by Europeans and probably in California too. So uh, why anybody would invest uh, in an industry that got terminal value, very problematic, undetermined. I mean, the only thing you can do is just try to maximize your near-term profit. That's but, that's, but that's the problem, right? Because there's a mismatch yeah. here. Yeah. The mismatch is that you can stop investing in oil today. You can yeah. have a board meeting. The CIO yeah. can say, get out. Yeah. But most people cannot switch to EVs in a day. Exactly. Well, so that's that's the mismatch. That's exactly to demand and supply. But you know where I have more conviction? You know, where I have more conviction is actually metals. And I believe that what's interesting, and, and I've been writing for four years on this thesis, um, you know, what's beautiful about macroeconomics and why macro investing is difficult, it's, it's like playing chess, where every four years, the way you move pieces changes. So the, the rook doesn't go the same way it used to. It now goes like a knight. And you have to now relearn a lot of things. This is why macro is so exciting. So the uh, correlation between PSF, Chinese total social financing and credit growth, and commodity demand, I made a theoretical argument, again, straight out of the thin air, SUMA modeling, if you will, uh, that this relationship will break, that China will not be as relevant for metals in the future. Now, the reason this is difficult to prove is that the data does not support your view at all. Uh, but the resiliency of some of the metals in the face of what's going on in China today, I think, validates this. Now, you could argue, well, no, 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 it doesn't. Copper's going to collapse. Like, just wait for it. I don't think it will. I think we're in a capex cycle where China only matters theoretically and philosophically. In other words, the capex cycle exists to reduce China's relevance to the supply chain. I think we're in a capex cycle because CEOs have rock bottom confidence but have to continue to invest because American consumers are healthy, their balance sheets are healthy, and they have all the stimulus that they didn't deserve. So there are reasons to do CapEx. Oh, and another reason to do CapEx is we didn't do it for 12 years when interest rates were low. And I think that this CapEx-driven cycle can continue. If we have a recession, the Fed cuts rates, it will re merely accelerate. So throughout this decade, I think demand for metals can be quite healthy despite China's growth problems. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I just published a chart. Basically, uh, uh, I totally agree with that thesis. Basically, the impact, the marginal impact of Chinese economy on overall commodity prices is diminishing. It's, uh, you can see the cycle is completely... Uh, well, I'm going to steal that chart from you. Yeah, I know. It now. Okay, so yeah, see that, see that, see that chart uh, previous Mondays. Oh, oh. It is uh, one completely uh, separate wage. But anyway... Let's let's deal with the question. Do you have any questions? We'll have yes. like five, six minutes left. I do. We're done. I do. I have two questions that I think uh, one is very important. Uh, Ray Dalio is shifting his bullish view from China to India. So, you know, what's your take, uh, Chen, on India from geopolitical macroeconomic perspective? Can it, it Ray Dalio is basically saying that uh, India is where China was in the early 80s. It can't. Yeah, it, it can. Uh, I think it's probably, uh, if you look at it per capita GDP, it's really equivalent to where China was uh, in the uh, sort of mid-90s in that in that area. Because right now we're talking about India's per capita GDP of about 2000 bucks. That's that's that's, uh, that's where China was uh, late uh, 90s, early 2000s. So 20-some years ago, that's possible. Um, 
the biggest challenge for India, I mean, if China's story is very easy to tell. Uh, of course, you've got a free market capitalism uh, being adopted by Deng Xiaoping, and they have extraordinarily very, very high savings rate that allows the Chinese economy to build up, build out this capital stock at a very rapid pace. That is classic. Uh, that's a classic uh, 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 Rolls model when the uh, Robert Solos introduced uh, in the fifties. That's a that's a it's a it's a classic demonstration of Solos model at work. Basically, in order to in industrialize the economy, you need to expand the capital stock so that labor productivity can be increased very rapidly, and that you can shrink your uh, agricultural sector employment. And that increase your uh, uh, industrial workforce very dramatically and quickly. So that's a, that's a China formula. Can India can India replicate that? Um, I think there is a chance they can do that, but so far uh, we have not seen uh, a clear evidence. The key problem with India is, I think there are two problems. Is one is the caste system. You know, there are big classes. You know, there's. It's, a, it's a kind of a difficult uh, to completely break that thing down because if you have that caste system, then um, there are probably some some um, building blocks for entrepreneurials to uh, to move ahead. That's that's one possible hurdle. Another possible hurdle is the uh, the savings rate because India's India's savings rate is 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 high but not high enough to allow. Um, Persistent double-digit investment growth and GDP growth. That's um, that's another potential issue. But I think overall, it's probably a more balanced growth. Um, you know, five six uh, percent uh, per annum. Uh, maybe at some point seven percent. Because in the past, every time India's economy hit seven percent, it started to run into current account problem. That's again relates to a savings issue. So yes, I think it's a possible. It's a definitely a possibility, especially Modi's uh, got this economic policy more as right. Uh, but there are, there are, of course, like any countries, there are lots of challenges too. I mean, the uh, the savings is one. Uh, religion, religious uh, relationship is another. So these are um, issues on the background. So I'm generally positive. I'm, I think it's impossible, but it's not as fast as the Chinese. Uh, hyper growth period. It's hard to imagine that India is going to go do that, but it's going to be steady as you go. Yeah. I also, what I would add is that demographics are not destiny. Uh, I hear a lot of people talk about demographics and and just say like, well, it's a demographic story. It'll be positive. I'll just remind everyone watching this that one of the healthiest demographic regions in the world was North Africa in 2011, and you got Arab Spring for it. So if you have a lot of young people who do not get productive jobs, that's a curse. That's not positive. You know, Sub-Saharan Africa has great demographics, as I, I think you mentioned in one of your LinkedIn posts. And so I, I worry about the amount of bullishness on India because of these big picture secular factors. But I will also say that I've been wrong with India quite, quite a lot of people being bearish. One thing that I have started noticing is that fixed asset investment is going up, and I think Modi's government needs to be given credit for this. One last question, last question, Chen, then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, you know, you have a BRICS summit in South Africa. 
going on right now. Just talk about expanding it to Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, maybe other countries as well. Uh, how do you take this? Is, is this is this relevant to you? Do you have a macro take that you would take? This? Uh, yeah, I gotta. Add, I can. I give you my two cents, and I I like I really like to hear from from you, Marco, on this issue. I don't know. I think the the uh, the BRICS, um, you know, it's a bunch of countries together. I don't think there is a lot of substance to it, except that China really want to take that as a uh, alternative uh, group for developing countries, sort of encountering the uh, the G7, the high income world, which is becoming very hostile to Beijing. But I'm not sure that is going to be uh, the Xi Jinping is going to achieve that purpose. I mean, for example, India and China have a huge problem between them, a very competitive relationship between them. Not a border issue, but also, uh, you know, no, come on, it's not that bad. They don't use guns; they use bats when they yeah. fight. Like, it's this. <laughs> so, I mean, they try to create some uh, common currency. I don't think that's going to happen. So I, I I don't think too much of it. I mean, I, I don't know what 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 is the guiding principle of this break, you know, the membership. What is what is the obligation? What is their uh, benefits? What is what is the benefit? What is their obligation? What is their uh, duty? You know, it's not clear at all. I think it's just a bunch of country, hopefully wishfully, thinking that uh, they they could become a some kind of alliance against the West. But I I don't think it's gonna happen. Meaning any meaning any. But that's my two cents. You are yeah. expert, man. Go ahead. You no, listen, I, I, I'm not. I mean, this is, you know, who knows? But like what I would say is there was a concept called the non-allied movement yeah. during the Cold War. Yeah. Now, it didn't matter because the founding countries, including India, Yugoslavia, Egypt, um, a lot of sub-Saharan countries were just irrelevant completely and utterly for the global economy. Like nobody cared. Now, today, the share of GDP of a lot of these non-like countries is rising in prominence. And I think that it just reinforces not geopolitical multipolarity, but also economic and financial. So, you know, nobody cared about Indian capital or Brazilian capital or South African capital or Yugoslav capital or Egyptian capital in 1967. But in 2023, it's nothing to scoff at. In 2040, 2050, man, it's as relevant as the U.S., as Europe. As these countries grow and they naturally will grow, their share of the pie that goes to the non-aligned movement will be relevant. So I, I do think we need to think about it in those kind of big, slow-moving terms. But they're not going to change a the currency. They're not going to do this and that. And the final thing I will say is that, first and foremost, we need to give credit where credit is due. I mean, Jim O'Neill, as member... Of yeah. our community, as yeah. ever, our community of essentially professional bullshitters, uh, yeah, has spoken into existence. I totally a agree. Geopolitical you. alliance, and I just don't know. I mean, that is the pinnacle of your career. You know, I mean, I don't know where Jim O'Neill is right now. We all, of course, know him. Uh, he came to our event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know where and he is, but like, just can we have a slow clap? For the greatest piece of south side research ever written. Absolutely. Man wrote this piece in 2001, and now he's basically created uh, to existence. A chill political alliance. He retired and then enjoy picking soccer, you know, with, with, with his kids, I think. Well, well done. Well done. All right. That's man. it. Let's, uh, that's it. I hope you all enjoyed. I hope we added value. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to speak uh, with you, Chen. And, uh, 
we'll uh, I guess we'll check back in 12 year, uh, 12 months see if uh, we got something right this time likewise likewise it's always fun to do things with you Marco bye 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 What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.